Welcome to Eternal Life. Seven questions that every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a special free podcast series that is created for anyone who genuinely seeks truth, but who sometimes struggles to believe in some of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. This is a safe place where you can belong without having to believe, as we aim to objectively explore the logical, historical, and academic facts and circumstances that surround the life of Jesus, whom many call Christ. My name is Rory Vaden, and I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization. I'm actually a researcher, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Hall of Fame business speaker who has spent a lifetime wrestling with these very questions in my own personal life. I've simply decided to share my findings here so that if I should die before my kids become old enough to understand this, that my two young sons would have documentation for the rational reasons why daddy has come to believe in miracles, a resurrection, heaven, and the story of Jesus as Messiah. I'm glad you're here. Let's explore the evidence. All right, so if you listened to and went through the evidence that we just looked at in the second question, it is pretty hard to argue that Jesus of Nazareth was not a real person, right? There is an overwhelming amount of evidence, especially when compared to other historical figures and historical incidents that are accepted as true and real that Jesus existed. So that is a long way from proving that he is somehow a Messiah, a deity, the Christ, the Son of God. And so for a long time in my journey, what made sense to me was the idea that, okay, Jesus was this real person. Sure, he affected a lot of people. You know, he was a teacher, he was influential. And as my brain and my mind processed that, I processed it very much like how I would process many of the pastors today, or not even pastors, but speakers, right? Which is, I mean, that's part of what you would say I am. I, by trade, a professional speaker. I've spent my life earning income from delivering speeches and studying the spoken word as a part of my profession. And so you go, well, okay, so the guy lived and he probably was a great teacher. I mean, many of the stories that are shared in the Bible are probably true. He probably had all of this, you know, this wisdom and maybe said some things that were very profound. And so people recorded that just like they would today, whether it was, you know, pick your person, John Maxwell or Brene Brown or Tony Robbins or anybody else who might be a well-known speaker that people learn from and they admire. And so to me, it made sense that Jesus, he did live and he did say some profound things and people probably did record them, but it didn't mean he was the son of God. And there's lots of examples that exist even in the world today that I can wrap my mind around until it became apparent to me that there were some three specific, there were three very distinct differences about Jesus of Nazareth from 
other good teachers or speakers, or today we might call them thought leaders or influencers or or even pastors. And in a worldly sense, okay, so let's table the spiritual components for a minute. And we just look at, in a pragmatic sense of, of facts and things that are documented and things that we have worldly evidence for, there's three factual reasons or worldly reasons why someone might believe that Jesus is the son of God that makes Jesus different from other great teachers or other great prophets or other dreamers or instructors or professors or pastors or whatever term you want to use. And that's what I want to talk through now, because this was another significant moment and point in my journey. And I'll I'll tell you what the three things are that make Jesus distinctly different from just other good teachers. So the first is what he said, and we're going to look at that right now. The second is how he lived, meaning like what he did. And there were certain things that he did that make him very markedly different from other, you know, teachers and prophets and speakers. And then the third thing is how other people responded to him. Okay. So with one is looking at what he said, two is what he did or how he lived, but three is noting some important differences from the way that the people who were around Jesus and who knew Jesus responded and reacted to Jesus, some of which, many of which who were not actually believers that he was the Messiah. So we'll we'll talk about those. But I want to start with what he said. And there are several things that Jesus said that I think are important that put him into a category that separates him from just a good guy or a good teacher or a philosopher or a speaker, you know, or a messenger or prophet of some kind. And we'll look at several of those, but I want to start right up front with, to me, what is the most important thing about what he said in the context of because he said this thing, this is what makes him most different from other prophets, other teachers, etc. And it's so obvious and underneath our nose that it's easy to miss. And for years, I never really understood the importance and the significance and the magnitude of this first thing that he said. So what am I talking about? What is this thing that Jesus said that makes him so different from other teachers? It's simple. Jesus claims repeatedly and directly in multiple instances, in multiple places, multiple locations, documented by multiple people in a multitude of different ways, Jesus directly claims that he is the son of God. He says it. He makes that claim. Now, you might say, well, okay, well, why is that important? I mean, obviously, right? Like, obviously, you kind of know or, you know, people generally believe that Jesus, the people who believe in Jesus believe that he is somehow a deity. So why is it such a big deal? that Jesus would say that he was? Well, there's a couple reasons. The first reason why that matters so much is because 
you may not know this, but no leaders of any other major world religions of today ever pretended to be God, or they didn't claim to be God. So according to Dr. Gary Habermas, this is someone that I cited earlier, there are no reliable historical sources or any type of ancient texts that exist where any of the founders of any of the world's major religions actually claimed to be God. And that's very different from Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am God. And I'll run you through several of those citations so that you can go read them for yourself. So the distinction here is that for other world religions, many of them are, they are teachers and they are prophets, but none of them claim themselves. They themselves don't claim to be God incarnate. Like, they don't claim themselves to be a deity. So, for example, Muhammad, who is the founder of Islam, okay, and Muhammad is a prophet. Muhammad never claims to be God. He's a prophet, yet he is the founder of one of the major world religions. So that is distinct and different in character and at the core identity from Jesus, not just in the different leading different religions or being the founder of different religions, but the fact that one, Jesus claims to be a God, Muhammad, on the other hand, does not. And Buddhism is very similar. Okay. So the Buddha, who is the founder of Buddhism, was a teacher. Buddha was a teacher and an extraordinary being. But according to that faith and that documentation and the history and the corroboration, Buddha never claims to be a god. So you can be a teacher, you can be a prophet, you can be extraordinary, and you can start a world religion without claiming to be god. And in the case of Buddha, he was very much a human being who became enlightened. So he reached nirvana, which, you know, as I understand it here, again, not haven't spent all my life studying Buddhism, but as I understand it, this is the goal, right? This is the pursuit is to reach enlightenment or nirvana. And Buddha did that, but Buddha never was God, never claimed to be, nor do the followers of the religion claim that he is a God. That's not how it works. But Jesus is different. Jesus said he was God. He himself, not just the followers, he himself said it and it was recorded. So why am I making such a big deal of this? Well, because it hit me, I don't know, probably 10 years after my journey of like wrestling with some of this, you know, how much is to be believed here about you know, the Christian faith. And, and honestly, I was, I was raised in the Christian faith. And so I sort of had this sort of spiritual underpinning of thinking, Yes, you know, I, I believe or I'm supposed to believe or I, I was raised in it, but it wasn't until much later, right? It really wasn't until I was in my 20s that I, I started to explore some of the history and the logic and the rationale, which I'm sharing with you now. And this discovery didn't really occur to me until I was in my all the way in my 30s, which is that if somebody says they are the son of God, they either are crazy. Like if somebody says they are God, they are either a lunatic, a madman, they are drugged out, they are whacked out, 
right? They either are that or they are the son of God. And I mean, you know, if you think about pastors today, right? I don't recall any, at least any many, you know, public instances of where pastors come out and claim to somehow be God or to be, you know, the son of God in a way of saying that they are a deity. They know they are not God. They know where their limit ends, right? And that is true about many of the world religions and people who are philosophers and prophets and teachers of world religions. They might be advancing the idea that they've received messages from God, but they're not claiming to be God, to be a God or to be the God or God himself. And Jesus did. Now, there are plenty of people who have claimed to be God, and those people are crazy. They're crazy, right? There's a few semi-recent examples that are sort of popular in the mainstream that I will refer to here just to sort of like emphasize the point and the conclusion that I came to. So one of them is Jim Jones. So Jim Jones, this is in, you may have heard this story. So at November 18th, 1978, 909 people died from cyanide poisoning in Jonestown, right? So if you've ever heard the term, they drank the Kool-Aid, this is referring to Jim Jones. So Jim Jones claimed to be a god, and he gave these followers, and actually, you know, interesting fact, it wasn't Kool-Aid. People say Kool-Aid. It was actually technically a cheaper alternative called Flavor Aid, which is, you know, I can't help as a branding person, but go, man, that's that's a bummer for the brand of Kool-Aid. But it actually was Flavor Aid, but people call it drinking the Kool-Aid. Anyways, Jim Jones gave people Flavor Aid laced with cyanide. 909 people died from this, right? And this was something they followed him. and. The world at large today, I mean, look, Jim Jones it either is crazy or he is God, right? Because he said he was. He's not something in between. I think most people, I think it's safe to say this, you know, most of you probably look at the evidence there for that person's life and the facts and the details surrounding that event. And most people today probably draw the conclusion he was crazy. He was a madman and he killed a bunch of people, which is tragic and devastating and awful and horrible. Okay. The other semi-recent example. So Charles Manson was another person who believed that he was a God, that he was actually Christ reincarnated. That is part of what the Manson family, which are the, the people who were the followers of Charles Manson, believed, which was that, and that's what he he purported, that's what he suggested, that he was the Christ reincarnate and that the other followers, I believe that they were also reincarnate of like the very first Christian or something to that effect. So again, Charles Manson, believe this, many people died and you either go, yeah, the guy is, either God, like he either is who he said he was, or he's completely crazy. He's a raving lunatic. Another more recent example, this is one that happened in my you know lifetime, like I, re I remember this, is David Koresh, right? So, so David Koresh, that actually wasn't his original name. So he actually had a name change. So his original name was Vernon Wayne Howell. I mean, he was born in 1959. And Vernon Wayne Howell later changed his name to David Koresh. And David symbolized this, that he was a part of this, the biblical line of King David. 
And then this last name that he took on, and this was an actual legal name change that was granted by the courts, Koresh is apparently the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, who was this Persian king who was named a Messiah for freeing the Jews during Babylon captivity. So when David Koresh changed his name, it was a part of him professing himself to be a Messiah, the Messiah, a descendant of King David, just as Jesus is, and a messianic figure. And by the way, that term messianic, that's a churchy term. That means the Messiah. And David Koresh believed that he was carrying out this sort of divinely commissioned task. So David Koresh died. I think it was 75 or 76 people died in this this whole instance in Waco, Texas. It was, you know, this highly televised event, very, very tragic, terrible. And you kind of have to reconcile with this issue that if somebody says that they are God, if they say they are the Messiah, you kind of have to come. It forces you to come to a conclusion that either they are who they say they are or they're complete raving lunatic. So this hit me really, really hard. But by the way, Jesus of Nazareth is cited as predicting that this would happen. So if you look in Matthew 24, verse five, he actually says, Jesus actually says, for many will come in my name saying, quote, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. So Jesus actually warns people of this dynamic, which has proven out to be true, along with other predictions that Jesus made, which we'll we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But this hit me really hard because as a logical person, where Jesus sort of safely lived for me was, okay, he lived, he walked the earth, I'll grant that. Okay, he was a good teacher, he had some good lessons, I'll grant that. And then it ends there. And I go, okay, I have sort of Jesus safely on a box that works for me to go, okay, I believe this was a real person, right? Like I'm I'm not blind to history and to archaeology and to, you know, the the overwhelming amount of evidence that this was a real person, but I also don't have to acknowledge that this guy is Christ and that he is the key to eternal life and that he's Messiah. And so for a long time and for many people I've talked to, you know, along the way, I think that's that is a place where many people have Jesus sort of safely parked in their mind. He was a good man, he was a prophet, he was a teacher, something like that. But this actually, as I understand it now, is not really an acceptable explanation because Jesus says that he's God. So when he comes out and says that I am God, when he makes that very, very clear, you now are forced to reconcile with that claim. People who say they are God are either crazy or they are God. And most of the ones who say that, I think many of us, I'm speaking generally here, I I think this is safe to say, most of us would say those people are crazy, right? They're lunatics, they're madmen, which means Jesus is a crazy lunatic madman unless he's not. And so that becomes a really important insight to go, Jesus can't live safely in the middle. He has to be on the extreme because you can't be someone who says you're God and not be and still be a good teacher. If you say that you are God and you are not God, you are a liar and you are a liar in one of the most deepest, most significant, most profoundly 
perverted ways that I, for one, cannot accept that this person could be a good person. They have to be rejected. So that forcefully creates this conundrum that if he said he was God, then he either is or he's crazy. And honestly, when I meet people now, and we have some of these discussions around Jesus and who he is and you know all these things that we're talking about here, I actually can accept, like I when somebody says, I think Jesus was a raving lunatic madman, I go, okay, I buy that one. Like I buy that. I go, if you come to that conclusion for yourself, I mean, by all means, to me, that is somewhat of an edge, like a logical, I don't think it's, you know, it's not what I believe. So I don't agree with it, but I, I kind of acquiesce to go and I, from a logical standpoint, can accept that as a rational place to land because what is not rational is to go, oh yeah, this guy's really good. Even though he lied about being God and told everyone he was God and pretended to do things that God would do. Uh, no, that means he was, in my, in my eyes, I go, that means he was a deceiver. That means he was a manipulator. That means that he was basically a magician who somehow pulled all this off that convinced people to believe that that he was the path to heaven. And in reality, he's not. So I go, Jesus, he can't live in the middle. Not for me. I don't see how you can logically arrive to that conclusion that, oh, he's just a good teacher. He's polarizing. He, by virtue of what he said and definition of who he is, the very nature of what he did and how he acted, which we're, we're about to break down and analyze, he polarized himself. So he either is who he said he is or he's crazy. And to me, those are really the only logical you know, conclusions to reach. Now, I do want to clarify one thing on this because I'm saying here, you know, very directly that Jesus claimed that he is God. And other people have, you know, written about this and there's been discussion around this this issue because as much as I'm saying that Jesus makes it clear, he very clearly claims that he is God. He doesn't actually verbatim say the words, I am God. Okay, so I'll talk you through what he does say and why there's like no confusion here. But I do want to actually acknowledge what, you know, some people have sort of, I mean, tried to disassemble this agreement that either he's crazy or he is God by the fact that he never actually said the words he is God. And I actually want to acquiesce to that point, at least biblically speaking, which again, the Bible here is my source of truth for this discussion in terms of what, you know, what is the definition of Christianity and what Christianity is is what is written in the Bible, not what other people say. And so when you hold that argument up against the Bible, you go, wait a minute, where does Jesus say I am God? Like, show me, show me in the scriptures, right? You know, pick up the Bible and open to the page and say, show me where he says, where Jesus says the phrase, I am God. And I want to acquiesce on this to say he doesn't. He doesn't say it like that. But he does make it very clear. So let's just walk through this a little bit so that, again, I'm willing to acquiesce and, you know, concede certain points, kind of like, you know, the textual discrepancies and things. I don't want to just sort of blindly say, oh, well, you know, just if you challenge the Bible, like there's no truth to that. And you just, you know, you're just not a believer. I go, no, no, let's look at it and let's look at the evidence, right? That's the whole point of this is what is the evidence say here? So it's not in the Bible. I'll save you some time, or maybe you can find it. I can't find it. And I don't think it's in there. I don't think he says I am God. And there's two reasons why I don't think he says this. Two reasons. The first reason, which is pretty simple and straightforward, is that if Jesus said the words, I am God, that 
would have been a clear act of blasphemy according to the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees. For someone to claim that they were God directly would have been just a a clear violation of the law. It would have been a black and white, that is blasphemy. And if Jesus had come out and said that directly like that, then he knew, because Jesus knew the law, meaning the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, right? So we covered that before. Jesus knew the law really well. And so if you, and you can read this for yourself, if you go to Leviticus 24.16, Leviticus 24.16 clearly articulates that anyone who commits blasphemy should be stoned to death. Okay, so this is Old Testament. This is like one of those 613 laws. Of course, Jesus is going to come like sort of erase all that or, you know, reshape all of that into love God and love others. And for all of us as sinners to be covered by his life. But at the time that Jesus was alive, that wasn't all done yet, right? So in order for him to stay alive, he couldn't say that I am God because he would have just been crossing a clear line and he would have been stoned to death and there would have been justification for that. So that's one reason why I don't think that he ever says that I am God. The other reason why I don't think Jesus says it is because, and this is completely conjecture here. So let me just tell you, like, this is not in scripture. Okay. So this is Rory's opinion. Remember, I told you I would, I would try to highlight for you when I'm going off the beaten path and saying, here's what Rory thinks versus here's Rory interpreting the evidence that I've discovered. This part right here is, you know, completely my opinion and conjecture. But I think that Jesus wants us to decide for ourselves that he is God. I think he wants us to choose him. I think he doesn't want to force it on us. He wants to give us evidence of this, and he wants to demonstrate pretty clearly that he is. But to be a believer, ultimately, as much as I'm trying to logic our way through this and provide rationale for it and evidence for it. That's the core of this series is I'm trying to lay out what evidence does exist for a rational person to believe these things. Ultimately, that only takes you up to a certain point. Like it's almost like if you use a football analogy, it's, or, you know, it's like you can take the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think that part of what I'm, you know, laying out here, because this has been my own journey is that I'm laying out the evidence that there is there that we can get right up to the edge of the water, but I can't make you drink. Nobody can and nobody should. That wouldn't be real belief. If being any belief that's forced upon you is not your own choice. And what I believe and I infer from scripture and from all of the things that I'm sharing with you, and part of what we'll circle back around here to later in subsequent questions and discussions, is that I believe that God ultimately wants you and needs you to choose to love him, to choose to believe that there has to be some distance, there has to be some gap that he doesn't close all the way for you so that you're choosing, you're actively choosing him. And, you know, there's a story about heaven and hell with uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And this is where that story comes from, where this man realizes after you know supposedly after he dies that oh hell is real and that he is in hell and he is now eternally separated and he begs and he says will you please tell my family on earth 
that this is real. Will you please show yourself to them? And the way that it's written is they said, no, they have the law and the prophets and they have Moses and they have Jesus. Basically that there is enough evidence for someone to believe and to have to provide more is to sort of overstep the bounds. And I understand this as a parent, right? I go, I want my kids to love me. I want to do things for them. I want to take care of them. I want to provide for them. I want to be a good father, but ultimately I don't want them to love me because I make them love me. I don't want my kids to love me because I've given them no other choice but to love me. And so I now understand this really being a parent to go, yeah, I want my kids to love me. I want to do everything I can to show them that I love them. I want to give them reasons to love me. But what I don't want is I don't want to make them love me. I don't want to force them to love me. I don't want to make it to where there's no other option but to love me because then that's not really love. That's me forcing my hand upon them. So I want to draw near to them. I want to go to them. I want to be close to them. I want to do for them. But ultimately, I have to leave some amount of space even if it's just a little space, because there has to be a step that they take towards me. It can't just be as much as I'm pursuing them, I'm chasing them, I'm providing for them. I want to show them that I care for them and that I'm here for them. They have to close that gap somehow on their own. Otherwise, it's not really love. And so I understand that now, now that I am a father and It is not lost on me that Bible and the scripture refers to God as our father. And I have learned being a parent, I now, I have a deeper understanding. So, you know, the book of Genesis says that we're created in God's image. And so if we're created in God's image, I think in some ways we reflect, in many ways we reflect and we resemble, you know, God's divine order. You know, we are his children in that way, not in a way of like deity, like I'm not saying I'm a God, but the Genesis teaches that we're created in God's image. So we have certain characteristics and elements about how we live that reflect him. And so as a father myself, a father of humanly children, I relate to that. And I can understand that where I couldn't understand it before. Before I had children, I would just go, well, if he's God, why doesn't he just like prove to everyone he's God? Why doesn't he just like show everyone he's God? so that everybody will just love him. Why doesn't he just do that? Like he's God, he could do anything. But it's kind of like, well, that's not really love. He wants you to love him. And that never made sense to me until I had my own children. And now I know because it's like, I can give them so much, but I can't make them love me. That's a choice they have to make. Thank you for listening to this special podcast series, Eternal Life, seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully, you'll notice that I've tried to take great care in documenting and citing references so that you can go explore the sources yourself. If you would like a consolidated copy of all of these citations, including an organized listing of all of the Bible verses that I referenced throughout the whole series, please visit eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free and I'll send it to you. Again, to grab that free resource, just head over to eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free.
Enjoy. And so I think that's part of what is happening here. I think that's part of the dynamic. Again, this is conjecture. This is not scripture. This is Rory talking, but this is my interpretation of scripture and what I've read and just my own processing to go, okay, now I understand that. But I, so I think that's part of it. I actually, I think that's part of it, but the historical reason, the documented reason, okay, returning to fact is Leviticus 24, 16, right in the law, Jesus would have been stoned to death. So. Then the question becomes, all right, well, if you're saying that, you know, he claimed to be God, then, but he didn't say I am God, then, okay, where's that coming from? So let's talk about that because even though Jesus never says I am God, he makes it very, very, very clear. And I want to walk through that just so that we can reach this premise, this foundation of going, no, he either is God or he's lunatic because of the things that he said and the things that he did. So the phrase that Jesus most often uses to refer to himself according to scripture, which again, right, this is eyewitness testimony and people are documenting what they heard Jesus say in the New Testament, specifically the gospels, which are recording Jesus's life. The phrase that Jesus most often uses to describe himself is the son of man. Okay. The son of man, which is sort of like, you know, that interpretation in the English language is a little bit weird. For me, I've always been like, that's sort of a weird thing to say, the son of man. Why doesn't he just say the son of God or whatever? But again, the whole you got the whole blasphemy thing. But son of man is a phrase, okay? When Jesus says that, that's not just a name that he made up for himself. He's referring to a section of the Old Testament. And I dug this up. He's referring to Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Okay, so in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel has a vision of a, quote, son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay. So that's from Daniel again, seven thirteen, chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Okay. You can go look that up. So that is where the term son of man comes from. So Jesus is citing this old Testament pasture when he refers to himself as the son of man. That is again, he's referring to that verse, which is that I mean, what is he saying there? He's saying that he has access to God, the ancient of days, that he, that Jesus is saying that he himself is given authority, glory, and sovereign power, that all people, nations, men of every language will worship him and that his dominion is everlasting. So he's being very clear about his eternal dominion, but it's not the only way that Jesus makes this claim. Okay. So in John four, so John is, I'm talking about gospel here. So John chapter four is the story of the woman at the well. And this is a beautiful story if you've never heard the story, but Jesus is with a Samaritan woman who, again, historical context here, Jews, which Jesus was a Jew, okay? Jews would normally never associate with Samaritans. They wouldn't. That was not the way of the day, of the time. But Jesus talks to this woman, right? And Jesus breaks lots of these cultural barriers because Jesus loves everyone, okay? Spoiler alert, if you didn't know that, Jesus loves everyone. The gospel is for everyone. We'll talk about 
that more when we talk about what the Bible says about how to actually get into heaven. But in this story in John chapter four, so Jesus asks this woman for a drink. Okay. She's at the well and he asks her for a drink. And she says, how can you do that? How can you ask me that? I'm a Samaritan. So she's sort of acknowledging like, we're not supposed to interact. And certainly I'm not supposed to draw water for you. And Jesus replies, and this is what he says. Okay. This is verbatim. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay. And she doesn't understand at first. Okay. So she kind of was like, what, what do you mean? And so then Jesus goes on to like really make this clear. And he says, everyone who drinks this water that she's drinking will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is basically saying, I can give you eternal life and you should be asking me, you should be the one asking me for that. If you knew who I was, the son of God, you would be asking me because you would know that it is through me, I can give you eternal life. Which by the way, side note here, again, this is Rory going off the factual path. I have found this to be true, this story about Jesus. And this is one of the more anecdotal, like one of the more spiritual, faithful reasons why I've come to believe in Jesus. I have actually found this to be true, that everything in the world leaves me wanting more. I have pursued things of this world, power, fame, money, influence, sex, the possessions, houses, cars. I have tasted and sampled I think most of what the world has to offer in terms of the finer things, and I have chased things, I had accomplishments, achievements, recognition, right? I mean, I have achieved, I think, a lot, as humbly as I can say this, in worldly ways, right? Like, I have a master's degree. I was in the world champion of public speaking, first runner up. I'm the youngest person to be inducted into the Speaking Hall of Fame, the youngest American to ever be inducted into that. You know, I've got viral TED Talks. I've had millions of views. I've sold hundreds of thousands of books. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Like, I've got achievements and accolades, right? I've got this. I've also had a Bentley and I've lived in really nice houses and I've traveled to many of the nicest resorts in the world. I don't mean to brag here. That's not the point I'm making. What I'm saying is I have done those things. I have experienced those things and all of those things ultimately leave me empty. And so this story that Jesus is talking about is that if you drink the water that I have, you will never be thirsty again. And I have found that to be true, that as I read scripture and I learn more about the character of God and who Jesus is, it fills me completely. And not only does it fill me completely, it quenches within me this worldly desire to achieve more and have more and conquer and be known by more people and have more money. Now, I still want to be successful, but it's driven out of a different place. It's from a desire to serve, not from a desire to be served or to be well-known or to have authority. This is the only thing I found, the word of God. Jesus, the story of God and Jesus is the only thing that I have found that satisfies. And you know, I've gotten more and more of it. So 
Anyways, that's just a side note for you off the factual path. That's just a little bit of me telling you about my life. So anyways, coming back to scripture. So Jesus then tells this woman about her having five husbands. So he goes on to tell her that he knows that she has had five husbands. So she doesn't tell him that, but he tells her that. So this is an example of like, he is telling her something that nobody else would know, but he knows. How does he know, right? He knows because he's God. He then tells her that a time is coming where any non-Jew can worship the one true God. Because remember, God back in those days was for Jewish people. In the law, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament was God's, you know, sort of instruction manual or guide for how the high priest could have access you know, in relationship to God. And then the Jewish people could sort of have indirect access to God through these priests and through this whole sacrificial system. But Jesus is saying a time is coming where non-Jews can worship the one true God. Okay. And then in John chapter four, verses 25 and 26, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Okay, so the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. She says that to Jesus. And then this is what Jesus says in response. Listen to this. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Okay, I who speak to you am he. So again, he doesn't say I am God. But when she says, I know that Christ is coming, he says, I am he. He says that to this woman. So he's making it very clear in that story. And then there's several other places. I'm going to rip through a bunch of these. So in the gospel of Luke, okay. So remember Luke is the doctor. And so Luke chapter nine, verses 20, verses 22, Jesus is talking to his friend, Peter. Okay. So remember Peter is one of his inner three. And Jesus asks Peter this question. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, like Peter answers, he says, the Christ, you are the Christ. Or some versions, different translations of the Bible will say that Peter responded, you are God's Messiah. And Jesus strictly, so what happens is he says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ or you are God's Messiah. And Jesus' response is, do not tell anyone. The son, you know, basically he's saying you're right, but please don't tell anyone because the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and on the third day be raised to life, quote unquote. So he's acknowledging that Peter is right without saying it, the verbatim words. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, it's the recording of the same encounter, but it also references that Jesus says he will build his church on Peter by, and Peter's name means rock. And so Jesus sort of gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. And then he repeats that warning to the disciples to not tell anyone that he is Christ. So it's not so much that he says, I am the Christ, but you know, they say you are the Christ. And he says, you know, basically it is, as you say, do not tell anyone else about this. That same story is recorded in Mark chapter eight, verse 29. This one is without the inclusion of the acknowledgement of that. When Jesus makes the reference that he's building his church on Peter. And this is an interesting little nuance here, just for some of you that are really into the details. Um, I discovered this later that remember what we said about the gospel of Mark. We said that Mark was written by a close friend of Peter's. 
So when I hear the gospel of Mark, I often remind myself if this is sort of like the gospel of Peter, because Peter was the one who lived it, but Mark is the one who's documenting it, right? So Mark is the one writing, but he's writing like the things that Peter saw. Well, it's interesting that in the book of Mark, he leaves out the reference or the term where Jesus says, I will build my church on Peter. And this is really fascinating because this would have been a place for Peter to lift himself up because this is sort of Peter's gospel. Like if Peter's telling this to Mark, he's saying, this is what happened, that Jesus said, I will build my church on you, Peter. You are rock that I will build my church on. But Peter leaves that explanation or that line out of his recount of it to Mark. And this is fascinating because it means that it signals a changed heart that happens in Peter. Peter in the other gospels, early in the gospels, you know, there's a lot written about Peter because he was there. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. There's some like a little bit of hubris that you see in Peter or a little bit of like arrogance or just kind of like, you know, self-centeredness and Peter trying to be close to Jesus, etc. But then later after Jesus dies, Peter has a humbling experience because Peter actually disowns Jesus, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. And so there's this Peter always after Jesus died, he was humbled because he almost like never lived down that he disowned Jesus in Jesus's you know greatest time of need right before the crucifixion. And so Peter has this changed heart. And this little moment right here is is a sign of that, that when Peter is retelling this story, he leaves out that line. But in the other gospels, they record it likely because Jesus actually did say that he was going to build his church on the rock, on Peter. Anyway, so that's just really interesting little nuance. Now, other places where Jesus makes it clear that he is God, even though he doesn't so much you know, say, I am God. So in John chapter five, verse 36, this is a quote. Jesus says, for the very work that the father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the father has sent me. So he's not saying I am the son of God, but he is saying that God is my father. And in John 5, 39, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So again, Jesus is signaling that like up to this point in your life, you've had your faith in the scriptures, which is good, but don't miss what the scriptures are written about me. I am the person that the scriptures are writing about. And if you really want life, it's not through the scriptures, it's through me. Like I'm standing right in front of you. You should know me. And again, so Jesus is making this claim. In John chapter five, verse 43, Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me. So I've come in my father's name. In shortly thereafter, John chapter five, verse 46, Jesus says, quote, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Again, Jesus being very clear that what is written in scripture is all about him and that he is the son of God, the son of man. Other references, there's a whole bunch of them in John. So in John chapter six, verse 29, Jesus says, the work is this, meaning the work God requires of you. The work is this to believe in the one he has sent. And then in verse 39 and 40, he goes on to say, and this is the will of him who sent me. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Again, Jesus referencing 
the importance of the son and the son's relationship to the father and that he is the son. In John chapter six, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter six, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then a little while later in John chapter 6, 54, Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then in verse 57, he says, just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the father are one. In John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus says, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. In John chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles, the miracle he's referencing, miracles he's performed, the miracles that, you know, that you've seen themselves. In John chapter 20, verse 28, this is the resurrected Jesus comes back. Okay, so this is after Jesus dies. One of the disciples named Thomas, who's famously called Doubting Thomas, didn't believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he says, you know, I won't believe it unless I see Jesus with my own eyes and I put my hands into his own wounds. We'll look at that later. But anyways, in John chapter 20, verse 28, Doubting Thomas finally comes around when the resurrected Jesus appears to him. And he says, my Lord and my God, he says that directly to the resurrected Jesus and Jesus doesn't correct him. Same in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, all the disciples are in the boat and they're worshiping Jesus. This is right after Jesus walks on water. So this is very famous miracle. And Jesus, they say to him, truly, you are the son of God. And Jesus doesn't correct them. And then in John chapter 14, verses six through seven, if it weren't absolutely clear yet that Jesus believes he's God and he is making the claim, he's asserting that he is God without saying the verbatim phrase, I am God. In John chapter 14, verses six through seven, this is one of the most famous verses of the Bible. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. So while I would acquiesce to the point, that is true, the verbatim, Jesus never says, I cannot show you in scripture where Jesus says the words, I am God. There are repeatedly, and these are not all of them. These are just some of the most famous ones that I have grabbed, you know, that I kind of like knew where to look to go get them, right? Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is claiming that he is God. He is God's son, that the way to heaven is through him. He has everlasting dominion. He is the bread of life that, you know, he is the man, which then again, you know, points us back to going a sane person, a normal sane person doesn't say those things, right? Like how many people have you met in your life that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The key to heaven is through me. A normal sane person does not say that. A crazy person might say that, a whacked out person on drugs might say that, 
but a normal sane person doesn't say that. So you don't get to say that. You don't get to be able to say those things and still be considered just a really nice guy. No, you are crazy or you're who you say you are. Those are the only choices here. So that's the first thing that Jesus says. And part of why, again, what we're studying here in this lesson are the three worldly reasons why someone might believe that Jesus was not just a good guy. And you know, the first one is based on what he said. And the first thing he said is that I am God. So you don't get to say that and then just like live in the middle and be a good guy. But there's other things that Jesus said that were recorded by multiple people, okay, in these historical documents that also suggest that he is more than just a good teacher, that he either is God or he's crazy. And another one, which is a pretty big deal, is that Jesus predicts his betrayal. So Jesus has a way of saying things before they happen, which to me is an important note that if someone really was God, they should be a little bit psychic, right? Like they should be able to predict the future. And if they are able to predict the future, that is something that I would point to and go, yeah, you know, if you tell me now, right, and and you're welcome to come up on the street and tell me this and say, Rory, I'm God, I am the Messiah, I am the way to heaven. And I would be like, okay, prove it. One of the things that would prove that to me is if you were able to tell me things about my life that nobody else knew, like this woman at the well, and he knew that she had five wives and they had never met, right? How would you know that? The other thing would be, you know, some of the more other things we'll talk about later, like the resurrection and all that stuff. But before you get into having to to believe in a resurrection, which still at this point sounds crazy and ludicrous to me, you know, at this point in my journey, then maybe to you, if, if you're just going through this for the first time, but he predicts stuff. He predicts several things. Jesus says things and then they happen. And he does that repeatedly. One of the things that he predicts like repeatedly is his betrayal. So there's two different people that Jesus predicts are going to betray him. And he makes this prediction and multiple people recount these episodes. So the first person that Jesus predicts is going to betray him is a man named Judas. Judas was one of the disciples. He was one of the homies, right? He wasn't on the inner circle. He wasn't one of the inner three, but he was one of the people who did life with Jesus. He was there, a disciple. And this is recounted, okay? So I'm going to give you the verses and then I'll tell you what is said, okay? So go look at Matthew 26, chapter 26, verses 24 and 25, or go look at Mark. And again, remember when I hear the gospel of Mark, I think the gospel of Peter, but go look at Mark chapter nine, verse 31, go look at Mark chapter 14, verses 18 through 21. Go look at the gospel of Luke. And remember when I hear the gospel of Luke, I think the gospel of Paul, right? That's just reference to earlier, but Luke is the doctor, this very, you know, scrupulous historian. So if you go look at Luke chapter 22, verses 21 and 23, go look at John, the gospel of John chapter six, verse 70. Or go look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. You can look at any of those recounts, right? All of those moments are moments that were documented in history of this event where Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him before Judas actually betrays him. And so one of the most famous parts is at the Last Supper, and Jesus says, So all of these people are sitting with him, you know, the disciples are there and Jesus knows he's about to die. And he says, the hand of him 
who is going to betray me is with mine on this table or on the table. So Jesus is announcing to a room full of people, to the disciples, to his closest friends, that one of you is going to betray me. And Judas, I presume out of his own insecurity, apparently speaks up out loud and he says, surely it's not me. And Jesus says, it is you. Now, that's not the only time that Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal of him, but that is one of the big moments, right? So Jesus predicts that not only will he be betrayed, he'll be betrayed by someone close to him and that he will be betrayed by Judas, the specific person. And this betrayal we're talking about is that Judas turns him in and leads him to be crucified or leads him to be captured, which ultimately leads him to be crucified. Jesus knows this is all going to happen because how does he know this is all going to happen? I don't know, right? That blows my mind. Like, how does he know? The only explanation is that the guy is God. I've never met anyone else that can predict the future, right? Like, I mean, with this level of accuracy and I mean, you can go see psychics, but like, I don't believe in psychics. I don't believe in them because they don't predict things accurately always 100% of the time. Jesus does, right? Jesus is calling his shot here. But he not only predicts that Judas is going to betray him, he also predicts that someone else is going to betray him. This one is shocking. He predicts that Peter is going to betray him, which kind of blows everybody's mind because Peter, remember, arguably is Jesus's closest friend while he's alive, that Jesus and Peter, Peter knows him perhaps the best. And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you the verses. Go look in Matthew 26, 34. Mark 14.30, Luke 22.34, and John 13.38. He says, I tell you, Jesus is Jesus talking, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So in that case, Jesus is saying that Peter is just, he's not going to turn him in. He's not going to harm Jesus physically, but he says that you're going to deny knowing me. and then that happens. So Jesus predicts that before it takes place. What else does Jesus predict? Well, in this vein here of going, why would somebody maybe believe that Jesus actually is a God, a deity that he somehow is, you know, has supernatural powers? What are the worldly things? We'll talk about the supernatural things later, but we're just talking about the worldly things right here. The other thing that Jesus does is he predicts his death. He says he's going to die. And he says how he's going to die. Like he shares a number of sort of facts and details about his own death before it takes place. That's crazy, right? How many people have you known in your life who have been able to accurately predict their own death? Me, not many. I don't know about you. None of my friends nor anyone do I know has ever been able to predict their own death. So if somebody predicts their own death, That's pretty unusual, right? To even make an attempt at it would be pretty unusual. But for the details to then play out as true, that would be shocking and a little bit scary, right? That would blow your mind. That would freak you out a bit. Jesus does that. Jesus does that many times, okay? So there's three separate, well, there's there's three separate times specifically in the synoptic gospels. And then there's seven other times in John, but they're a little more subtle in John. Okay. But 
in the synoptic gospels, remember, what are the synoptic gospels? They're the first three gospels. So the gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the documentation of Jesus's life while he's alive and his death. But the synoptic gospels are the, just the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, because they recount several of the same episodes. So you can sort of triangulate facts because they're recounting several of the same, you know, scenes or things that happened in Jesus's life. Okay, so three different times Jesus predicts his own death in and all three of these different times are each recorded in all three synoptic gospels. So nine times altogether, it's documented in just the first three gospels that Jesus predicts his death. Okay, so the first time that Jesus predicts his death is, I'll give you the verses. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 22, Matthew 16, 21, and then Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Okay, so all three of these are three different accounts of the same instance, of the same event. Okay, and what's the event? And I'm going to read it from the Luke's version. Okay, so this is Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 22. So what happens is this is right after Jesus fed the multitudes, which you've probably heard, you know, how Jesus like takes a few fish and some bread and like feeds a bunch of people. Now, regardless of whether or not you believe that to be true, okay, because that's supernatural to go, I believe that the guy could take some fish and take some bread and feed a bunch of people. That's supernatural. Okay, we're going to just table that for now. We'll deal with that later. I'm just talking about the worldly things. And the worldly thing happened here that kind of blows your freaking mind is that Jesus is about to predict his own death. Now, obviously, when he does this, he's still alive. So nobody knows this is a prediction of his death. They're just recording what Jesus said. So Jesus allegedly fed the multitudes, fed a bunch of people here. And then this is what he says. This is verbatim. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he not only predicts that he's going to die, he predicts that he's going to suffer tremendously before he dies. And he predicts that the primary or he names the people who are going to be rejecting him. He names the people who are going to be responsible for his death, which are the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law, which, by the way, the churchy term for this is the Pharisees. Pharisees are like the expert teachers of the law. So, I mean, that's amazing, right? He's predicting he's going to die, who's going to kill him, and that he's going to suffer tremendously. And that prediction is recorded by three different people through three different ways of that same prediction. Now that's the first time he predicts his death. The second time is shortly after something called the transfiguration, which I'm not going to go into there because that's sort of a supernatural thing. But after the transfiguration, the only disciples that were there were his inner circle. So Peter, James, and John, the three that he was tight with. Remember James and John are brothers and John writes the gospel of John. And Peter is there. So Peter, James, and John, and for just to call it short, they saw Christ in, quote, his heavenly glory. And I'll just leave it at that for now. But it's this sort of supernatural event. But Jesus predicts his death right there. So after the transfiguration happens, he's with these three guys. And these three guys, Jesus says to him that he's going to die. And then it's recorded in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, 
and Luke chapter nine, verses 43 through 45. And then the third time is, I'll give you the verses. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Okay, so again, this is three different accounts of the same moment. So, and what's happening here is they're heading towards Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus tells them how he's going to die. So he says, he shares these details. Specifically, he says he will be mocked, scourged, crucified, and then he will rise again. So there's three different times he makes that prediction recorded by three different people. So there's nine accounts of the, the same three times of Jesus predicting his own death in these synoptic gospels. That's crazy. That is a shocking amount of corroboration, meaning different people remembering and recording the same thing. And why would they record it? It kind of makes sense that you would record it, right? Like if you later years, when people asked you, they said, what, you lived with Jesus? You knew Jesus? What happened? Like, tell me about Jesus. And you go, what are the things that I need to write down so that people will know about Jesus? One of the most memorable things you would probably remember is when your homie told you he was going to die and that he was going to be killed by a group of people and that they were going to crucify him and that he was going to be dead. And he said that to you while he was alive many times. I mean, that would be pretty crazy. You'd be like, yeah, my guy was out there a bit. Like it's because, and again, normal sane people don't do this. Normal sane people don't predict their own death. And so that's where I say that he's either crazy or he is who he said he is. So those are in the synoptic gospels. And then in the gospel of John, okay, John also was a member of John is one of the eyewitnesses here to Jesus's life. There's seven times that Jesus predicts his own death. They're a little bit more subtle. So I'm going to give you four that I thought were like pretty clear. John chapter 12, verses seven through eight. John chapter 13, verse 33. John chapter 14, verse 25, and John chapter 14, verse 29. Jesus calls his death before it happens. Okay, so he says that he's God. Then he says that his friends are going to betray him. Then he says he's going to be killed by specific people in a specific way. If that weren't enough, he also predicts his resurrection. <laughs> so. Not only does he say, I'm going to die, these people are going to kill me, I'm going to die in this way, but after I'm dead, you're going to see me again. What? What? I mean, just again, separate the spiritual components and the supernatural components of this. Think about this in your everyday life. Like, imagine if one of your friends said this to you, like, I'm going to die and three days after I'm dead, you're going to see me again. You would literally think your friend is crazy. You would think your friend was on drugs, right? One thing you would not think is that your friend was just a good guy. You'd be like, you're whacked. You're whacked, which again, points to my whole argument here. Like my whole, this is a huge moment of going, yeah, no, like this is crazy. He's crazy. He's crazy. He's either crazy or there's actually a lot of evidence here that suggests he is very, very different. He is potentially the son of God. He is like no one else who's ever walked the earth. He's doing things and saying things that no one else has ever done 
no one had ever done before him and no one has ever done any of this since him, right? Other than people who we all kind of agree are crazy and out there, which he also predicted that would happen. I mean, I referenced that earlier. So he predicts his resurrection. When does Jesus predict his resurrection? I'm trying to save you time here, right? So just so you know where to go. So in all nine of those synoptic gospel references that we just walked through, he predicts not only his death, but he predicts his resurrection. So they go together. Okay. So in Luke chapter nine, verses 21 through 22, he says he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. All right. And that's also in Matthew 16, 21 and Mark 8, 31 through 32. The second time, if you remember, was shortly after the transfiguration. His inner circle is there. They saw him in his heavenly glory. Jesus predicts his resurrection there. And then again, when they're heading towards Jerusalem for Passover, so this is Matthew 20, 17 through 19, Mark 10, 32 through 34, and Luke 18, 31 through 34, as they're heading towards Jerusalem, he tells them that he would be mocked, scourged, crucified, and then rise again, in quotes. But that's not it. That's not it. So there are a few other times that I found. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus predicts his own death that, quote, and here's the quotes. This is what he says. The son of man will be buried for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then in Mark chapter nine, verses nine through 10. So this is after the transfiguration in front of the inner circle of the three, but a little further after that, Jesus gave them orders, the inner circle, these three, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. Okay. So they just witnessed this transfiguration, this supernatural event. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. And then he says this quote, until the son of man had risen from the dead. (laughs) So he says, don't tell anyone about what you just saw until after I die and come back to life. After I die and come back to life, you can tell people this because then they might believe you. But, you know, presumably this is what he's saying. This is my interpretation, right? He's saying, don't tell them this now. No one's going to believe you. They're going to think you're crazy. If you go tell everybody what you just saw, all your friends, they're going to write you off. They're going to think you're crazy. But after I die and come back to life, then you can tell people what you just witnessed, right? And that had to just be mind-blowing for Peter James and John. I cannot even imagine what that was like, but that is what he said. Okay. So those are things that Jesus said, right? Remember I said, there's three reasons, three worldly reasons, even if you don't believe in the supernatural, but there's three worldly reasons why someone might believe that he's the son of God. The first is that what he said, he said he was the son of God. Okay. So he doesn't get to be a good guy. He's either crazy or he is God. He is the son of God. Then he predicts he'll be betrayed. He predicts that he'll be murdered. He predicts that he'll raise from the dead. And here's an important point for you. As of right now, you may not believe still that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you don't, I don't blame you. It's hard to believe, especially initially. We'll talk about some of that later on. But whether or not you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, let's table that for a moment and just isolate the fact that many people think he was raised from the dead. So whether or not that's true, let's not address that right now. But there's many people who believe that he was raised from the dead. And he predicted that he was going to be raised from the dead. So 
even if it's not true that he did raise from the dead, the fact that he predicted it and a lot of people believe it is still pretty freaking mind blowing, right? He predicted something crazy. He predicted something wild. He predicted something unimaginable. He predicted something that nobody has had ever seen in the world and that nobody has ever seen since in any type of reliable documented way. Jesus predicted it. I'm so honored that you are here. And I really hope that this Eternal Life podcast series is helpful to you and your loved ones. On that note, can I ask a quick favor? If you feel like it's appropriate, would you mind leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to this show? That really helps get the word out about this so that we can reach more people with this information. And it helps people decide if this is something they should really take the time to get into. Relatedly, I also want to encourage you to share this episode or this entire series with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Obviously, it's totally free, but it's our prayer that God would use this series to reach a lot of people because we know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with doubt and skepticism, and I know what that's like. And I also know what it's like to experience the deep peace and fulfillment that comes from having completed all of this research. So if you don't mind, just visit the main listing of this series in whatever app you're using to listen to it and leave us a rating and review, and then just hit the share button and send this out to anyone in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks so much. And whether or not it happened, a whole lot of people said it did. A whole lot of people, which we'll talk about later, said it did happen. So even that alone is pretty impressive. I mean, I don't, impressive is far understating the word, but that's pretty impressive, right? Like if your friend said, listen, Rory, so man, I love you, bro. I want to tell you goodbye because you're not going to see me for a while. I'm about to die. There's some people that really don't like me and they're going to come and they're going to murder me. They're going to torture me. And in fact, one of our friends who we know is going to be the one who turns me in. And then these people are going to capture me and they're going to torture me and it's going to be brutal. And then what's going to happen is I'm going to disappear. And then three days after I'm dead and I'm buried in a grave, you're going to see me again. If they said that, and then you actually saw it, that would blow your mind. Now, everyone else in the world might not believe you, but if a bunch of people said that he said that, and then a bunch of people said it actually happened, just the circumstantial component of that alone is incredible, incredibly convincing that he predicted something and then it happened. It's sort of like, here's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of Babe Ruth. Okay. So Babe Ruth called his own shot. He called his own home. And I think this is a great parallel because Babe Ruth never claimed to be God and never claimed that he was a deity of any kind. But if you've ever heard this story, okay, so this is Babe Ruth played for the New York Yankees. And he was playing against the Chicago Cubs. And this is in the fifth inning of game three. So it's a baseball game. In the fifth inning of game three in the 1932 World Series. And so the date here is October 1st, 1932. This is at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And allegedly, okay, the legend is that during his at-bat, Babe Ruth made a pointing gesture, which 
the existing film confirmed. So this has been, there was film at this time. Okay. So Babe Ruth made a pointing gesture that looked like he was promising he was going to hit a home run. And then he hit a home run (laughs) and it was huge. Right. And now do people debate? People can't debate the home run. In this case, they can't debate the home run because it was caught on film. They also can't debate whether or not Babe Ruth pointed because that was caught on film. What people debate, though, is whether or not the reason that Babe Ruth was pointing was because he was promising that he was about to hit a home run or if he was just pointing at the fans, you know, or like of the Cubs in the dugout or he was pointing at something else. So that's what people argue. But regardless of whether or not you believe that Babe Ruth was calling his own shot, it is remarkable and absolutely extraordinary the circumstantial component that he made a pointing gesture and then hit a home run immediately after that, right? And so that's a legend. It has become a legend. Why? Because the odds of that happening are so impossible to imagine just in a baseball game that in your actual at-bat within the next few pitches, you would actually do that. Now imagine how more unlikely it is to predict your own resurrection from the dead. Like it's the Babe Ruth thing times like a hundred million. It's preposterous to say that you're going to do this. Now, whether or not you actually raised from the dead is a little bit like people debating whether or not Babe Ruth was calling the home run or if he was just pointing at fans. But nobody debates, you know, in Babe Ruth's case that it happened. In Jesus's case, people debate whether or not it happened, but a lot of people say it did. And so just that fact alone for something so preposterous as rising from the dead is outrageous. It's tremendous. It's like unimaginable, even if he didn't rise from the dead. So that's a big point, though. That's a big point. And you don't get to say you're going to be raised from the dead and get to be a normal person, right? When you start talking about that stuff, you're venturing into crazy land or you're, you know, supernatural land for sure. So Those are the things that Jesus said and what he said is important because I think that that matters a lot. It matters because it disallows the idea for Jesus to live safely in the middle as just a good teacher because of the things he said. They were too extreme. They're too polarizing. He doesn't get to live in the middle. Okay. So I can buy it. If you go, he's crazy. I go, all right, I'll buy that. You know, I'm not going to argue with that one. Like I could argue, I could make that argument. And I could make the argument that he was the son of God, but I can't really make the argument that he was just a good guy, even though he said all these crazy things like that. I can't really make that argument. That doesn't add up. Okay. So the first reason, worldly reason why you might believe he was more than just a good guy. So he's is because of what he said. The second reason is because of how he lived, how he lived. There were things that Jesus did that normal people would not do. There was things that he did that normal people do not do. And especially in that time, they did not do. Okay. So I'm going to give you a few of these and I'll give you a bunch of verses where you can go look at them. So the first thing is that Jesus referred to God, not as Yahweh. Okay. Which is how everyone, you know, in the law in you know the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. That's the term, which is like God in heaven, the ultimate sort of supreme being. Jesus refers to God as Abba. When Jesus talks about God, he doesn't use the term Yahweh. He uses the term Abba. Abba doesn't mean like supreme being. Abba means father. So 
Jesus immediately is sort of turning things on in their head. He's immediately doing these controversial things just by changing a word and referring to God, not as Yahweh, but as Abba. He's suggesting he has an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And this is powerful because this signals the access of the relationship we have with God today. If you're a Christian, that if you're a Christian, We'll define later exactly what that means and exactly how you become one. But if you're a Christian, it means that you have intimate access to God because of Jesus. Now, before Jesus, you didn't have access to God. Only the high priest did and only through this you know, crazy series of rituals and animal sacrifices. So you had to access the priest and the priest had to access God on your behalf. But post-Jesus, post the crucifixion and the blood, Jesus's blood being spilt, you have access to God. And so Jesus is sort of signaling that, right? And think about this of like, you might address a politician or like a CEO or like, you know, a judge. You would address them with reverence, right? You would address them with subservience. You would address them with this respect, but you would address them differently if they were your father, right? You wouldn't say your honor or, you know, you wouldn't say your majesty. You you would say daddy you would say, dad. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's very different from anyone in the dawn of history, right? So that's Jesus living in a way that is different from just like, you know, most people. And again, in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. And John 5, 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. In John 5, 18, And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So he's making himself equal with God, which was blasphemy, which was ultimately why Jesus was killed. The sentence, he was wrongly sentenced, you know, even even Pontius Pilate who sentenced him, who was like the governing Roman official who actually condemned Jesus to death, who didn't want to, but he was convinced to by a crowd of Pharisees and Jewish people, the crime that he was you know, allegedly crucified under his blasphemies, claiming to be God, which, you know, technically he did. He did claim to be God. Um, So because he is, or, you know, at least he thinks he is, and I think he is, and a whole lot of people think he is. So in John chapter 17, one through 26, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, right? Uh, Intimate. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Not something normal people say. John 15, seven through eight. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, by the way. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Beautiful, right? He, but he's, you know, he's talking about his dad. Mark 14 through 36, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me 
yet not what I will, but what you will. So this is Jesus knows he's about to be crucified and he's actually asking God to not crucify him, to not have to go through with this because he knows how brutal this is about to be. In Luke 23, verses 34, as he's being crucified, Jesus says, right? So he's on the cross. And as he's being crucified, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then in Luke 23, 46, right as he dies, Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. So I'm sure there's probably more, but these are ones that I found quickly. Again, that Jesus is referring to God, not as Yahweh, but as Abba, as Father. That was not normal. That was different from other teachers. Another thing that Jesus did that was different from other people was that he healed on the Sabbath. (laughs) Again, this is where Jesus comes in and he starts like disrupting stuff right away, just from changing a word and saying things, you know, that other people weren't saying, but also doing things that other people weren't doing. So, you know, these Pharisees, these experts on Jewish laws who were like, you know, the most notable, they had all the power in the Jewish culture. They're very legalistic. And they had set up these like 39 categories of forbidden activities. And some of those were their own strict laws about how to observe the Sabbath. Well, Jesus comes in and immediately blows that up because he starts healing people on the Sabbath. And he claims that he was Lord over the Sabbath. And so there's three instances that Jesus refers to himself as, quote unquote, the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So basically, Jesus comes in and says, like, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am higher than the Sabbath. And it's Matthew 12, 8, Mark 2, 28 and Luke 6, 5. And then in Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, so quote unquote, the quote, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So basically Jesus is coming in and he's telling all the people who are like the know-it-alls, right? All the judges and the like top officials. And he's basically going, hey, I don't care what you say. This is how it is. Well, you know, he's speaking with major authority there and, you know, wasn't making friends with the Pharisees and they were in power and they had all these rules and Jesus was like disrupting them and saying, no, everyone, you know, he was just changing a lot of stuff. So in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 15, this is one of the most famous stories about the Sabbath. It says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath. To which Jesus responds and calls them hypocrites. (laughs) So he's flying right in their face. And then in Mark chapter one, verses 21 through 28. So this is in Capernaum. This is where Matthew originally was from on the Sabbath. There's a man in the synagogue who is possessed by an evil spirit and he cries out. So Jesus is there and, you know, this man is demon possessed. And he says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus says, be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. 
even evil spirits obey him. That's on Sabbath, right? So, you know, freeing people of demon possession, not something that you were supposed to do on Sabbath. In Luke chapter 14, verses one through six, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, which apparently is a form of edema or edema. I don't really know what that is. But anyways, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent, but Jesus went ahead and healed the man and then sent him on his way. In John chapter five, verses one through 16, at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus healed an invalid by telling him to, quote, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That was also on the Sabbath. So this is not just one time is the point, right? Like he is breaking tradition. He is breaking the worldly rules, asserting and suggesting his dominant authority. So he's very clear, right? He's very clear on like, I don't placate the laws of the world. I'm above them. I'm beneath my father, but I am above you all basically from a spiritual state and from a healing, right? He's healing. He's going, why would you not heal on the Sabbath? Why would you not take care of the sick? Why would you not care for the broken and the wounded? Like, because Jesus is about love. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus is about loving everyone, loving others. That is the message of Jesus. Whatever else you have heard, if you've heard anything other than that, I promise you, it's not from the Bible, right? Jesus's message is clear. Love God, love others. Boils the whole thing down right? Like you can take the whole Bible, all the pages, love God, love others. So Jesus is about love and love supersedes everything for him. So yes, there are sin. Yes, there is things that are right and wrong. Yes, there are consequences to your actions. Yes, there are things you should do and not do. Yes, there are things that will bring happiness in your life and there's things that will bring destruction, but love is above all. The story of Jesus is love. The message of Jesus is love, forgiveness, over all of your sin, all sin forgiven through him, right? We'll talk about that more later. But anyways, in John chapter five, verse 19, this is right after the pool of, the, of Bethesda. This is a quote, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So there you go. Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. That's something he's doing that is suggesting he's different from the other people. The other thing that he did was he forgave sin. So part of Jesus's deity is revealed also by him forgiving sin. Forgiving sin was something that only God could do. So according to the law and scriptures, I guess, and for the at least the way that the Pharisees in, in, interpreted it, is that this was blasphemy, that Jesus was forgiving people of their sins because only God was supposed to be able to do that. And so the church leaders, the Pharisees were, were saying like, hey, you can't do that. But Jesus is doing that and he does it a bunch, right? He does it a bunch. Again, these are historical documentation. So whether or not you believe, my whole point here again, just to not lose sight of it here in this lesson is not necessarily, I'm not making a case that these supernatural things are true. I'm making a case to say, Jesus is either crazy or he is God. There's no in between. And these are documented things that are happening. So in Luke chapter five, verses 20, it's also in Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. It's the same story. Some men carrying a paralytic on a mat tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him, this paralytic, on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. 
the Pharisees then claim blasphemy because Jesus is forgiving sins. And then Jesus, I love this. Jesus was very bold. And so the Pharisees are saying, blasphemy, you have forgiven sins. To which Jesus responds, quote, which is easier to forgive sin or to say, get up and walk. And then Jesus tells the man, the paralytic, who was just lowered down in front of him, get up and walk. And the man does. Bam, right? In your face. That's like Jesus drew in a massive mic drop moment here. Like, booyah! Like, basically like, I'm above this these laws, these weird laws, because Jesus cared about people. Jesus cares about people, right? If you become Christian and you believe all of this stuff, ultimately, what it means to believe is that Jesus loves people first not law. It's not about keeping law. It's about people. It's about hearts. It's about forgiveness. And he did not like that Pharisees made it all about this legalistic structure and that they had power holding over these laws, like guilt tripping people into stuff. And like, he's going, no, if somebody's paralyzed and I can do something about it, I'm going to do something about it. So he did that. This happens again and again. So Luke chapter seven. So Jesus is eating dinner at one of the Pharisees house. And this woman, and we don't know much about this woman. There's a woman there who, quote unquote, who had lived a sinful life. That's what we know about this woman. So this woman who had lived a sinful life in that town comes up and brings him an alabaster jar of perfume. She is weeping and using her tears to wash his feet. She pours perfume on them and is kissing his feet. The Pharisee, this is the guy's house that they're in. The Pharisee mocks Jesus for not knowing who she is. And right when he does, Jesus delivers a parable of two people who had debts that have been forgiven. And then Jesus says, he who has been forgiven loves little, right? He who has been forgiven little loves little. But basically he who has been forgiven of much loves a lot. And so the people who most love Jesus are the people who are the greatest sinners because they're the ones who've had the biggest debts. And once you understand what Jesus is about, Jesus erases your debt. And he goes, yes, you have a debt, a huge debt, and you can't pay it, but I will pay it for you. And so people who have big sins, once they come to accept Jesus, they're the ones who love him the most. Meanwhile, the Pharisees who are all you know, uptight and righteous about how perfect they are and all the things they do, they don't feel that love for Jesus because they don't feel like they've been forgiven because they don't feel like they're sinners, even though they are. And that's the point that Jesus is making. So he, for, but anyways, he says to this woman, so in the point here is in Luke seven forty eight, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, right in the face of the Pharisees in their own home. And then in John chapter seven, verse 53 through chapter eight, verse 11, This is a famous story, and there's an interesting note here. I want a factual thing I want to point out, but it's John chapter 7, verses 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11. This is the story about he who is without sin cast the first stone. Okay, so I'll I'll read you the story, and then I'll share with you the very interesting note. So the Pharisees bring Jesus a woman who's caught in adultery, and they tell him that the law of Moses commands us to stone these type of women who are caught in adultery. And then they ask Jesus, so what do you say? And so they're using this as a trap for Jesus because if Jesus tells them all to kill this woman, 
then he doesn't love people and you know he's a, he's a killer but if he tells them to forgive her then jesus does not uphold the law and so he is in violation of the law and so you know that's the trap that these pharisees have set for him which honestly is like a pretty smart trap so how does jesus get around this amazing brilliant <laughs> divine so this is what's recorded jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger And by the way, this is the only record of Jesus ever writing anything himself in the whole gospel. It's the only record there is of him personally writing something. And so the belief here is that he was writing out the sins of the Pharisees and he was writing them in dirt. And the reason is because of what it says in John chapter eight, verses seven. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he writes on the ground again. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, probably because they had more sins and Jesus was recording all of them. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus then straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And this adulterous woman says, no one, sir. And then Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so Jesus forgives this woman and this reconciles and marries up with something else that he says later, which is that for the son of man didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, to free the world of sin. And anyways, there's two little historical points about this story that I want to make. So one is that this is the only record of Jesus writing. But the other one here is that this is a powerful story, a beautiful story. It's And it's written by John, who is obviously one of Jesus's inner three, inner circle. And so I believe that this is true story. But I do want to point out and note, and, and many people may not realize this, and this is noted right in my Bible, that many of the earliest manuscripts of John and many other ancient witnesses don't have this story recorded. So we don't know if it was added later or if somehow it was skipped out or something. So there's a sec. This is a, I guess, you know, a somewhat questionable section of whether or not it should be included in scripture. So it's sort of a historically debated section, which you never hear. You know, you hear this story a lot because it's famous and it's beautiful. And I do think it really captures the essence of Jesus, which that he is here to forgive and that he loves everyone, especially sinners. And which is, you know, all of us, according to uh, Paul and Romans, but I do believe this happened. But anyways, I wanted to, you know, in the spirit of being factual and objective, I wanted to point this out that this is one of those discrepancies that I came across. And so I just wanted to to note that for you. So anyways, it's a beautiful story. I love it. And John would have been the one to write it because John would have been there most likely since he was in the inner circle and maybe not all the other disciples were there. So that's the part that I choose to believe about it. But that is ultimately conveys the message of Jesus. So Jesus forgave sin, which was not something that ordinary good people and good teachers did. He broke that line. The other thing that Jesus did was he lived lowly. He lived lowly. He was born in a manger in a barn to a poor family. Jesus lived from a poor family. So that's, you know, you can read about that Luke chapter two, verses six through seven. And this is God demonstrating that his love for you is not about how much you have or what you've done right? Jesus was himself poor. So he loves poor people. Jesus doesn't care about how much money you have. Jesus cares about whether or not you love God and you love others. 
But having more money doesn't mean you're more likely to get in heaven. In fact, if anything, it means you might be less likely to get into heaven. That's a separate subject about what Jesus teaches about money. But Jesus loves all people, all sinners. He loves you not because of what you've done. He loves you because you are his, right? And again, that's something I didn't understand as a Christian until I became an earthly father. Like once I had kids, I understood this. Before, when I was just kind of like a Christian and, you know, believer, but not full-heartedly believing, I was like, oh, okay, well, God loves me, you know, know, regardless of what I do. Of course, you know, God forgives me. That's so great. But I never really got present to it until I had my own children. And my own children, I mean, I love my children. And this is for you, boys, you know, this series. But y'all are some mess makers. My gosh, you destroy the house. You spill things. You empty cabinets. You mess up clothes. You stain the car. You scratch the car. (laughs) Not because there's anything wrong with you, but because you're just beautiful, perfect, little, wild human men. But it helped me, Jasper and Liam. You helped me understand God's love by just living your perfect little lives. Because it was through raising you and being with you that I realized there's nothing you could do that would make me love you more. And there's no mistake. There's nothing you could do that would make me love you less. I don't love you, boys. I don't love you, Jasper. I don't love you, Liam. I don't love you because of what you do. I love you because of who you are. You are mine. You are my children. You are my sons. You are of my loin. You are mine. And you are your mother's. And you are your father God in heavens. And so now that I have my own children, I understand God's love a little bit better. That it's not because of what they do. It's just because they're mine. And that's what the Bible teaches. It may not be what your pastor teaches. It may not be what your grandmother taught you. It may not be what you read in a book. It may not be what you heard on a podcast where somebody tried to make you feel guilty for some sin. Now, don't get me wrong. There is sin. There are There is right and wrong. But ultimately, God doesn't love you because you're not a sinner or because you're really good. He loves you because you're his, just like we love our earthly children because they're ours, regardless of what they do. And Jesus lived lowly and he spent time with lowly people. Jesus spent time with sinners. Like the woman at the well, the woman at the Pharisee's house. He spent his time with sick. Matthew was a tax collector. That was like one of the lowest people. And that's one of Jesus's like closest friends. You know, and you can read Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And he talks about Jesus being with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus washes people's feet. He washes the disciples' feet. In uh, John chapter 13, verse 5, he washes his friend's feet. And by the way, you may not know this, but that was a very disgusting job back then. Like you might think of washing your friend's feet, which you've probably never done. And you might wash your kid's feet or maybe even your spouse's feet in a bathtub or something where it's like pretty clean. But that's when they have had shoes on all day, living on paved streets for most of us. In the time of Jesus, these people wore sandals and they walked through the desert and the dust and the mud and the sweat. Their feet were nasty. They were rank. And Jesus is right there with his feet face and his nose at his disciples' feet, washing them with his own hands. I mean, imagine the picture of the God of the universe washing your dirty, stanky feet. That is Jesus. 
right? That is not what you would think of a savior. That's not what you would think of someone who declares to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he's going to come and wash your stanky feet. But that is who Jesus says he is. And not only will he wash your feet, he dies for us. We'll talk about what that means later and exactly what that was. But in John 13, 14, he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, by the way, there he is referring to himself again as Lord. I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. He's saying, serve each other. Two verses later, John 13, 16, Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus was doing these things that other people didn't do, these things that were abnormal and unusual. And that's different. He's different. (laughs) He's radically different. Jesus often asked people not to tell of the miracles he performed. He did that. Like in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, one of the rulers came and told Jesus his daughter had died and asked Jesus to come heal her. And then the sick woman touches his garment and she's healed. And that's like a famous story. But after that, Jesus then continues to this man's house, this one of the rulers of the day. And there's this crowd outside of his house talking about this woman who died. And Jesus tells them, oh, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him because they're like, she's been dead for a while. And Jesus goes in and raises her from the dead. But he told them that she was asleep. He wasn't trying to showcase. He wasn't trying to showboat, right? He wasn't peacocking as as the term is today. He wasn't like showing off. He was just loving people. And he was bringing this girl back from the dead, you know, so that his father would have the glory among this ruler. And so much that he was like covering this up with these people outside, just saying, oh no, she's just asleep. Which if you're the God of the universe, what difference is there between death and asleep? Apparently none. So he was telling the truth at least according to him. He says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is different. This is different. Jesus isn't self-aggrandizing. He's not self-perpetuating. He's not trying to get glory for himself, all the glory he gives to God. And so this is just like leadership, you know, to me, now I'm going off script here and off the Bible, but to me, intuitively, this is what mature leadership looks like, right? Not grandiose boasting, but a mature leader is someone who is is engaging in confident service. And can't you feel that? Like, can't you feel a difference in your life between someone who has a title, who is asserting their dominion over you and, and, and showcasing how important they are and telling you why they're so much smarter or better than you or other people around them, or they're like wielding their possessions. That's very different than somebody washing your feet and saying, I'm here to serve you. That's a different type of person. That's very different. And by the way, Christianity is the only major world religion where the ruler descends beneath the followers, right? First of all, it's the only major world religion where the God comes down to heaven to be with us, right? The other world religions, God is up there in the heavens. And many times we're trying to like earn our way there or become somebody to get access to them. Jesus comes down to us. That's a very stark difference of Christianity that God humbles himself, comes to live as human, and then is washing our feet and accepting murder for us. That's very distinct and different. So what Jesus said makes him very different. What Jesus did makes him very different. And then reason number three to me for how we go, Jesus either is who he says he is or he's a crazy person from a worldly perspective. 
we're not looking at any of the miracles or any of that stuff. It's just what are the facts that can be proven that demonstrate there is something highly abnormal, highly unusual about this guy. Okay. So we're not going so far as to say that he is the Messiah. We're just saying he's not normal. He's not just good. He is extremely unusual in stark contrast to other people. And so one of the other factual things to look at is how people responded to Jesus and how they reacted towards him. The way that people acted towards Jesus was radically different than how they have ever acted towards anyone else and how they act and react to pastors today and teachers today. It's it's very different. So first of all, the disciples who were called responded to him and immediately changed their life and followed him, right? So in Matthew chapter four, verses 18 and 20, Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and uh, he sees two brothers, Simon, which is Peter, Simon Peter, and Andrew. So Andrew was Peter's brother. And he says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. So people are like, boom, just dropping their life and be like, all right, I'm out. I'm following. I'm with Jesus now. I go where Jesus goes. That's radical. In Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, Matthew is recounting the story of meeting Jesus himself. And he says, Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said, follow me. He told him and Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew left his life of sin and lying and being a tax collector and greed and followed Jesus. Most people didn't do that. The other thing about how people responded to him that makes me very confident that something is very unusual and different about Jesus was how the people who didn't like him responded to him, namely the Pharisees. Okay, so the Pharisees did not believe he was the son of God. Most of them did not. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus, which is this great irony, right? Is They are the Jews. They're supposed to be like the supreme teachers of Jewish law, and Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish law. And so that is the great irony that they never recognized him as the one they were looking for. In fact, they killed him. But in doing that, it fulfilled you know the whole law and the whole story. But anyways, they said that Jesus was blaspheming because he was doing all these things, right? He was forgiving sins. He was healing on the Sabbath. You can refer back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 3. And so the way that the Pharisees responded to Jesus is an important historical fact because even though they weren't acknowledging that he was the savior and the Messiah, they acknowledged his presence. He was a big deal. He was a problem that had to be dealt with. If Jesus was just a normal teacher, he would have been like any other Pharisee, or he would have been just like any you know other prophet. He would have existed symbiotically and just got along, but he wasn't. He was radical and he was stark and he was clear and he was direct and he was powerful. And it caused a commotion that the Pharisees had to deal with. And it makes common sense to me. So this isn't scriptural, but this is an inference for me. It makes common sense to me that these people wouldn't have liked Jesus because he was disrupting their power. He was blowing up their structure. He was breaking their rules. Jesus was threatening the way of life for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones in control. The Pharisees were the ones with power. The Pharisees benefited from the honor and the reverence of the people. And Jesus was like threatening that and disrupting that. And so they had reason not to like him and they didn't. And the fact that they didn't like him says he wasn't normal. He wasn't just a good guy. He was clear and assertive and bold and direct and they hated and ultimately they killed him for it. So not sane and not normal. 
either crazy and ludicrous or absolutely he is who he said he is. And then here's another thing. This is just a historical fact. People desperately flocked to Jesus for healing. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that he actually healed them. That requires you to believe in the supernatural. That requires faith. I'm not asking you to believe that yet. What I'm saying that is irrefutable is that it is well-documented, pervasively documented on repeated occasions that people from all over who were sick and injured and demon-possessed or whatever, like people who had ailments, flocked to this man. They flocked to this man. You don't see that today. You don't see pastors walking down the street with hundreds of people following them, begging for the pastor to heal them. You don't see that, right? So you don't see that from motivational speakers, right? I mean, you know, I'll go speak in events and people have me speak and and hopefully I do a good job and they love it. And I get a line of people who will maybe take some pictures and sign autographs, but they're not bringing their sick and their wounded to me to say, can you heal? Because Because I couldn't do anything with that, right? Like, I don't know what to do. But whether or not you believe Jesus actually healed any of these people, just separate that for a second. What you can't really argue with is these people were coming to him. So I'm going to give you a bunch of verses. So in Mark chapter one, verse 32, which is also, and then in Matthew chapter four, verses 24 through 25, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 30, it talks about people flocking to Jesus. In Matthew chapter nine, verses 18 through 26, There's a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She crawls through the crowd and touches his garment for healing, right? So this woman is living in shame. She's bleeding and she's crawling through the crowd to just touch his garment. That story is also recorded in Mark 5, 22 verses 43 and in Luke 8, 41 through 56. So that story happened. Whether or not you believe she was healed of her bleeding just by touching Jesus's garment is just separate that. The fact that this woman did this is well-documented. In Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 25, Matthew 9 and Mark 2, 4, this is the story that I shared with you earlier. Friends drop this paralytic men through the roof, right? And Jesus says, get up and walk. Now, whether or not you believe the man actually got up and walked, that requires faith, right? I don't know how to prove that to you other than people said it happened and it was documented, but it still requires faith because I've never seen it. You probably never seen it. But What doesn't require faith, what just requires academic scrutiny and a little verification of the facts was that this happened and it was recorded by multiple people that they thought they at least believed that Jesus could heal this man. And then in Mark chapter six, verse 54, this is very well summarized. It says, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. I'm not asking you at this moment to believe that all who touched him were healed. But listen to what is written factually. People were flooding around this man. You can't argue really with that. The argument that people didn't flock to him doesn't stand up to academic scrutiny. It just doesn't, right? It's well-documented. Now, we can argue back and forth to our blue in the face about whether or not those people were healed or if there was some magic trick or they were deceived or they were high or, I mean, that 
I mean, there's got to be some explanation for it. You and I can just, that's just whatever we believe, but we can't really argue with the fact that they were there. But I will tell you that I believe that they were healed. And, you know, I love this, that it's written, all who touched Jesus were healed. All who touched him were healed. Jesus is for everyone and he forgives always. It's a beautiful insight into the character of Jesus. So altogether, I found 34, at least 34 verses that reference a crowd gathering around Jesus. 34 verses. Okay, I'll list them here for you, or I think this is 34. This is most of them. I'll list them here for you. So you go read it for yourself, right? Like, don't listen to Rory. Like, I'm just the relayer here. But Matthew 4.25, Matthew 8.1, Matthew 8.18, Matthew 14.13, Matthew 15.33, Matthew 19, 2, Matthew 20, 29, Matthew 21, 8, Matthew 21, 9, Matthew 21, 11. That's everywhere in Matthew. Then in Mark, it's Mark 3, 7 through 8, Mark 3, 32, Mark 5, 21, Mark 5, 24, Mark 5, 27, Mark 7, 1, Mark 8, 6, Mark 9, 14, Mark 10, 1, Mark 10, 46. Those are the ones that I found in Mark. Then let's look at Luke, Luke 5, 1, Luke 6, 19, Luke 7, 11, Luke 7, 12, Luke 8, 4, Luke 8, 42, Luke 8, 45, Luke 9, 11, Luke 11, 29, Luke 14, 25, Luke 18, 36, Luke 23, 27. That's everywhere I saw in Luke. And then in John, John 5, 13, John 6, 2. Those are references citing that crowds gathered around Jesus, bringing their sick people to Jesus. And again, I can accept someone who says, okay, well, Rory, just because there's a crowd doesn't mean all those people were healed. Okay, I'm with you. I can buy that. I had that same belief for a long time. So I can buy that part. But don't tell me that people didn't think that he was healing people. Clearly they did. And clearly they were flocking to him, not just a couple people, a few times, many people all the time. And you go, well, why is there so many documentations of this? To which I logically would say, well, it makes sense. Wouldn't you, right? Like if somebody was performing miracles, if somebody was taking lepers and making their leprosy disappear, if somebody was taking paralytics and making them walk, if somebody had been bleeding for 12 years and they immediately stopped bleeding by touching this man, wouldn't you want to go see? Like, imagine if your best friend told you that was going down and they're like, dude, I was in Alabama last week and there's this guy doing all this stuff. If you heard enough people tell you that, wouldn't you be like, I got to go see this for myself. I know I would. Right. Like if somebody, I mean, I do that even with movies and restaurants, right? People go, you got to check out this restaurant. You got to read that book. You know, that Rory Vaden book is really good or that whatever book, or you got to listen to that song or you got to go see that movie. I go, yeah, I need to go see this for myself. Wouldn't you? You would, right? We would, we do. That's how we are. When, when there's crazy things happen, when there's good things happen, when there's unbelievable things, we, the first thing we do is we go, I want to see it to believe it. I want to see with my own eyes. And the historical record records that. It says that that's exactly what happened. It's right here. At least 34 times it's recorded, right? Because you go, if Jesus really was doing all this, wouldn't there be a pretty good bit of hype? Yes. And there was, there was massive hype. It was gaining massive attention. People were flooding. That's not normal, 
right? So tell me the guy is a magician, a deceiver. Tell me that. And I go, again, okay, I buy that. He might've been the most incredible magician ever. To me, that is a belief that you could have. And I go, okay, that's not what I believe, but I could see that. But you can't say, oh, he was a good person. No, he was deceived. If if he wasn't doing these miracles, he was deceiving people over and over again. So he can't be a good guy if he's a deceiver. He can't be a good guy if he's just lying. He can't be a good guy if he's making people think that he's the way to heaven and he's not. He doesn't get to sit in the middle, right? And even in his death, his death happened in front of a crowd. He was uh, Matthew 27, 23, right? That's when the people were shouting, crucify him. He was always surrounded by crowds. Why? Something highly unusual about this man. Not just good, something very different. Also, if you read scripture, now this is a little bit supernatural, so I'll glance through this one for now, but there's many times in scripture that is recorded where the heavens spoke about Jesus. So, you know, I've never heard an audible voice for heaven. So this one requires a little bit of faith to believe, but it is recorded historically. Again, this is the way that the world responded to him. So after Jesus is baptized, this is in Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, and Luke 3.22, it's recorded that a voice from the heaven says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. Then there's the transfiguration, you know, which takes in Matthew 17.5, and then in Mark 9.7 and Luke 9.35. In Mark 9.7, it says, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud that said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then on that note, by the way, so in Luke 9.35, Luke 9.35 actually records that the disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone because at the time they weren't sure what they saw. So they saw it, but they were afraid to tell anyone because they were like, they didn't believe what they saw, which imagine if that were you, right? Like imagine if you're hanging out with your homeboy and all of a sudden his clothes start glowing and there's a bright flash of lightning. And then you see two dead people talking to your friend. That would probably scare the crap out of you too, right? Like you probably would be afraid to tell anyone. And Luke records that that is how they felt. And that is what happened. And that's why they never told anyone right when it happened. They didn't tell people until later after they saw the resurrected Jesus because multiple people saw it. And now people were like open to believing it. But when it first happened, they were like, what just happened? Like my boy is glowing and he has two dead people with him. That's pretty gnarly pretty gnarly stuff. And then in John chapter 12, verse 28, this is after the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So this is the story known as Palm Sunday. So this kicks off Holy Week, which Holy Week, you know, is the last week of Jesus's life that led up to his death, his crucifixion. And so just after Jesus again predicts his death, I don't know if I even referenced that earlier, but Jesus predicts his death. And that's as part of stating why he would he run away from the crucifixion that he knows is coming when he knows it's the purpose of his earth. So in other words, you know, there's a question like if Jesus knew he was going to be crucified, why didn't he run away? And the answer is Jesus knew the purpose of his life was to die. And so he didn't run away. He knew the will of his father. He knew the reason he was sent. Jesus knew that all along that his role was to die. So he didn't run away from it, even though he clearly was scared and terrified of it because we learn that when Jesus prays to God right before he's about to be crucified, that he asked God to take it away from him. But then he says, ultimately your will be done. And so he submits to it and he's crucified. So again, Christians don't believe that 
good things don't happen to bad people. Christians believe that the worst thing happened to the best person. And even Jesus didn't get everything he wanted the way that he wanted it from God. So, you know, God has his reasons. So anyways, a voice comes from heaven as Jesus is like walking, uh, is not walking. He's on the donkey riding in on Palm Sunday. A voice comes from heaven that says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And then Jesus clarifies in verse 30, quote, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. So Jesus is kind of acknowledging that everyone just heard a voice from the sky and people are freaking out about that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know I heard it too, but you know, that was for all of you. It wasn't for me. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's like, whoa. So again, that one takes a little faith to believe, but it's recorded. So people actually thought that happened. And then here's the other thing that is really powerful to me about the way that people respond to Jesus's death is that people who were near Jesus in his death responded in a very certain way. So in Luke chapter 23, verses 41 through 43, Jesus is hanging on a cross. There's a criminal next to him. Okay. He was being crucified with two other criminals. And the criminal says, we are punished justly for, we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And, you know, there's a couple of things about that story. One, somehow there is something about this man being crucified next to Jesus, whether there's some exchange or he's just witnessing what is happening. This criminal somehow believes just in his time there on the cross next to Jesus, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the path to heaven. And he asks like, so what is it about the way Jesus was living that made that man say that? I don't know, right? We don't really know that. That's not really recorded. All we know is that the man said that. And so something happened that made a criminal and a total stranger quickly believe in Jesus. The other part that's beautiful, the beautiful part about this story where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise is really powerful to say, this guy lived presumably a life of sin, an entire life of sin, all the way up until his final dying moments. And even though he lived an entire life of sin, in his final waking moments, he asked Jesus for forgiveness and Jesus grants it to him and he goes into heaven. And that's powerful. That's beautiful. That is to say, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been sinning, no matter if you've committed sins that are deserved of the death penalty, or you've committed only minor little sins that maybe nobody even knows about, but no matter who you are and how much of a sinner or, you know, how little of a sinner you're forgiven and you can be forgiven for all of it, no matter how big or small in one moment, that's powerful and beautiful. Another person that was near Jesus at his death, which was big for me, is in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. It records a fascinating detail about a centurion officer. This is really fascinating. So this is a Roman military officer. So this is not like a sensitive, tenderhearted guy. And this is not a follower of Jesus. In fact, this guy is a cold-blooded expert in killing people, right? His job is to crucify people. That's what he did for a living. So he was used to killing people. He was used to torture. He was used to death. And Romans 
okay? We know this from history. Romans saved this form of execution, crucifixion, as the cruelest form of crucifixion, that it, it was for slaves and the worst criminals. And, you know, archaeologists have recovered skeletons of crucifixion victims, and you can see that they had thick nails that were pounded through their wrist and right through their heel bones. And then the actual cause of death from crucifixion is death from asphyxiation, which means being slowly deprived of oxygen and the ability to breathe. That's what actually causes you to die. And so it usually took many hours or even in some cases, multiple days for people to die from crucifixion. So they were there being tortured in pain, not enough pain to just die right away, but just to experience this horrendous pain and to have it last for a long time. So scripture actually records the death of Jesus that he hung on the cross for about nine hours before he actually died. So anyways, so Jesus is being crucified on a hill called Golgotha. Okay. So Golgotha is this hill and that's where Jesus, he's up on this cross. And this is about a mile from the temple. Now inside of the temple, is a place called the Holy of Holies. Okay, the Holy of Holies is, it's a physical, like a room. And inside of this room is where something called the Ark of the Covenant resides. And so this Ark, which is, you know, think of it kind of like a treasure chest, it contains relics, like historical relics that are to remind Israelites of God's love and God's favor on them. So it includes things from the history of Israelites. So I believe there was like a jar of manna in there, you know, and manna fell from the sky when the Israelites were, you know, wandering in the desert to keep them alive. And Aaron is a, you know, one of the priests from the old Testament, his wooden staff is in there. And the Ark of the covenant or the Holy of Holies is where it's believed that God dwelled and God resided. So at the time of Jesus, before Jesus, it was like, if you wanted to commune with God, you had to go into this room, the Holy of Holies. And it was so sacred that there was only one day a year that anyone could go in there. That's called Yom Kippur, if you've ever heard of that. So Yom Kippur is this one day a year and only the high priest could go into this room because it was like you were in the presence of the Lord, like the the, the, the God's power and physical presence in some form lived in this room. In fact, we know from history that Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into this room, the other people would tie a rope around his ankle. And the reason is because sometimes priests, if they didn't follow the right protocol exactly, or there were certain things that would happen where they would die, they would just from being in the presence of God, they would boom, they would die. They would fall dead in a moment. And so the only way to get them out was they had to drag them out with a rope. And so when the high priest would go in there, they would have a rope attached to his ankle. So anyways, inside of this temple is this giant curtain, sometimes called a veil. And this veil, it was huge. It was massive. Now we don't know exactly how big it was because it was measured in cubits, but we don't know the exact measurement of a cubit. So that was the metric of the day back then was cubits. But historians and academics agree both, you know, sort of like believing and non-believing this is, is they believe that it's safe to assume that this is around 60 feet tall. Okay. So it's this curtain, this giant curtain that's like 60 feet tall. And there's a lot of, there's other historical documentation 
from non-Christians, like one of them is from Flavius Josephus, who I mentioned earlier. So Flavius Josephus was not a Christian, but there's a section of one of his historical documents that records the dimensions of this, this massive curtain. And so it was, it records that it was around four inches thick. Okay. So we don't know exactly the size, but you know, it's approximately our, you know, the best estimate is that it's 60 feet tall by four inches thick. In other words, it's huge, huge, and it's heavy. It's a heavy, heavy curtain. And so in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, Mark records that, quote, the curtain, when Jesus dies, as Jesus takes his last breath and he dies, this massive curtain that's inside the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. So there is this massive boom. So this huge curtain rips. So Jesus dies. He breathes his last breath and this giant curtain rips and it slams the ground and it shakes the whole area, right? Because Jesus is not far. You know, the Golgotha is this hill. Remember, it's close. It's like about a half a mile from this temple. So when this curtain falls, boom, it shakes the earth, like it shakes the ground, right? Again, you don't have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, but a verifiable historical fact is that there was a curtain, a massive, huge curtain, 60 feet tall, that around the time of Jesus's death, suddenly somehow split in two, right? So nobody knows. And just because the curtain split doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah. But what we do know is that people testified to, there's a physical curtain that's there. This thing is massive and it rips and it's also recorded this specific detail, it rips from the top down. So it's not at the bottom where someone can access it, right? And this isn't like, you know, a time in history where people have like forklifts and stuff to like propel themselves up. It tears from the top and people witness this, this thing rips and then it slams down and it shakes the ground. And so people hear it. So why am I telling you this? Because this centurion, this Roman military officer, this expert in killing people, this non-believing, non-sensitive guy, certainly not a Christian, he's never witnessed any of Jesus's miracles. All he has seen, his entire encounter with Jesus is him dying on a cross, torture, watching this man be tortured. And here's what it's recorded that the officer says, and this is in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, this Roman centurion officer, we don't know his name. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Whoa, whoa. You have somebody very unlikely here to suddenly become a believer in Christ. No reason other than witnessing this death and then potentially, presumably, feeling the ground shake, which was the result of this giant veil being torn, which is symbolic also that through Jesus's death, we all can now access God. We all have access to the Holy of Holies. We used to be separated from God by our sin. And so there was this giant veil and you had to go through these animal sacrifices and all these rituals. The high priest did, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and access God, which was at the risk of dying. So they had to tie a foot around him. And what happens is Jesus dies, breathes his last breath, 
the veil tears symbolic of us coming in to presence with God through the death of Jesus, through Jesus's blood and this murderer, this killer, this inhumane man who kills people for a living, his response is surely this man was the son of God. That to me is not a small detail. That is a lot. That is a lot. And when I go, I don't know, I struggle with the idea of you know some of this. But when history records that type of man saying that type of thing in that moment, it's hard to go. And and how was it torn from top to bottom? It was so loud that people heard it in Acts, the book of Acts, which is the book after the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, which is also remember believed to have been written. Most people believe it was Luke, the doctor who wrote the book of Acts. The priests were in front of the temple. And some people say that it's, it was recorded that many People came to faith in Christ just from the bang, just from the sound. So somehow these people knew in a moment that this man was the son of God. Again, I wasn't there to experience it myself. It requires faith to still believe it. But some of the historical facts that point to this that would seem trivial and insignificant actually corroborate in a very compelling way that these people suddenly believe that this man that died, he was the Christ, that there was something, even if they didn't believe he was a Christ, there was something magnificent and extraordinary and preposterous about this guy's death, about the moment he dies. And so to this very day, 2.4 billion people worship him. And that means that to this day, about a third of the planet has encountered the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. And you might not believe in the supernatural. You might struggle to believe in these miracles. I have. I have struggled to believe those things too. And at the same time, history records, and in modern present day, a third of the people on the planet testify that they have experienced the forgiveness and the love that is characterized in the story of this man, Jesus, for which so much has been written and documented. And there's so much corroborating evidence and nobody worships these other influential figures, right? Like nobody worships John the Baptist. Nobody worships Moses. Nobody worships Paul. People worship Jesus. Even the prophets, even John the Baptist, who, you know, I believe somewhere in the Bible that says there's no other, you know, man greater than he. I think Jesus actually says that, if I remember right, about John the Baptist, that, you know, before Jesus, that like basically John the Baptist was the greatest of all men. John the Baptist worships Jesus. They believe in him. And to this day, people believe in it. And I'm not saying that you should believe because of what other people believe, but we have to logically and academically and historically and objectively. If you don't believe, then you have to at least reconcile. You must, if you're going to be a non-believer, then to me, for all the same reasons why you wouldn't believe, you then have to be able to articulate what your refute is to these historical things. And it's your prerogative to do that. Again, you know, my goal is not here necessarily to make you a believer, but is to present the evidence and to let you be the judge 
right? To present the evidence to you, but to go, you have to do something with this evidence for yourself. And if you decide not to believe, that's fine. But then what is your answer for all of this evidence? Because there's no way, right? There's no way that Jesus is just a good guy. There's no way that he's just a prophet. There's no way that he's just a teacher. Jesus of Nazareth either is who he says he is, and I get it. It's a lot to believe. But he either is who he says he is, which was emphatic and clear and unmistakable. He is the son of man. He's the son of God. He has dominion over everlasting life. He either is that person or he is a crazy lunatic madman. But he predicts his own betrayal, his own death, his own resurrection multiple times. Normal people don't do that. Crowds flock to this man and they flocked to him to see what he was about. And so he either did things that made them believe or he lied to them and deceived them. So he either was who they thought he was or he deceived them and he's a liar and he is awful. And, you know, when he says in Mark verses 30 through 32 and in Matthew 17, 22 through 23, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. He's calling his shot. And at first, you might go, I just have a hard time believing in the resurrection. I do too. I did too. But a whole lot of people said and documented that he said he was going to raise from the dead, and then a whole bunch of people actually said he did. So even if he didn't, It was the most unbelievable, unfathomable, most impossible magic trick that has ever been pulled off in human history. And if you believe that, that's your prerogative. Or you might believe something else. The people were high or they were hallucinating. We're going to talk through that in a bit. But listen, with all the history and the evidence here, for me, what it kind of ultimately comes down to is if this guy raised himself from the dead, or was raised from the dead, I'm putting my eternal destiny in his hands. Like, I have a hard time believing it. I do. I have a hard time believing somebody walking on water, somebody bringing other people back from the dead, somebody calming the storms with their voice, helping paralyzed people walk. I have a hard time believing it. But if he raised himself from the dead, if he said he was gonna, and then he actually did do that, then you know what? I'm just gonna go, nothing else matters. This guy's my guy right? It all sort of hinges upon the resurrection. So there's these worldly reasons to go, well, he's not a good guy, but you know, there's some worldly reasons that are pretty hard that you got to reconcile. If you don't believe that Jesus was the Christ, you don't believe he's the Messiah. You have a lot, you got a lot, you got to resolve. You have a lot you have to work through here. And maybe there is answers for you. And if there is fine, good for you. Like as long as you have peace about it, And at least, you know, and that's why I said part of this is not necessarily, you may not believe, you may not become a Christian from going through this, but you'll at least know what it means to be a Christian and you'll know why you don't believe it. And I think that will make you more secure in whatever you believe in eternal life is all about or whatever you believe in for your religion. And I think that's a victory, right? If it becomes more affirming for your current faith walk, then I think that's also a victory. But, you know, I just have to reconcile these truths and, you know, that's what this is about. So, 
we're going to look at the resurrection more specifically in question five. So we're about to get there. We're about to explore that, but not quite yet. So before we get to the resurrection, or, you know, if you say, hey, it's all about the resurrection, you know, Rory, how do you as a logical analytical person with a master's degree who purports to be some like, you know, business expert or consultant or whatever term you would use to describe me in my professional, how did somebody like you come to believe that a man actually rose from the dead? You could skip ahead to lesson five. But before we do that, I want to look at the spiritual evidence, not the spiritual evidence, but what's the word? I'm the supernatural. I want to look at some other supernatural evidence that exists or doesn't exist that would also point to the fact that this man, Jesus, might be more than just a human, right? So we've looked at the worldly explanations for why he may be more than a human. There's a lot there, at least I think a lot to wrestle with, but there's also some supernatural things that also point to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. So we're going to look at those and, you know, we'll walk through that. And then we will get to what I believe is the heart of the matter, which is, did he rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, I'm pretty much going with him and pretty much everything else that not pretty much. If I believe that, then I believe everything else that also, right. But if I don't believe that, then nothing else matters. So it really ultimately is going to come down to the resurrection. And so we'll look at that. But before we do that, Let's talk about this word prophecies and what are prophecies and what prophecies were written. So clearly we know now, right, at the end of this question, question three, we know that Jesus believed he was God. We know that Jesus acted like he was God. We know that Jesus said he was God. We know that a large number of people responded to him as if he was God. But Is there other evidence that exists that points to the idea that he really was the son of God? Specifically, were there other predictions that were made about this man and about this man's life and about this man's death before he ever arrived to the earth? Because... There were allegedly inspired prophecies that were written hundreds of years in advance that were describing many of the characteristics of a coming Messiah. So what did those say? And what are the odds mathematically of any of those actually being true? So we will look at the evidence for that next. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eternal Life, seven questions every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. As I've mentioned a few times, I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization of any kind. But if you are curious to get to know a bit more about me and the professional work that I do as an author, strategist, and speaker, you can head over to RoryVadenBlog.com. There you will get access to lots of free training resources for business people. I co-host a business podcast also with my wife and business partner, AJ, and we have a personal brand strategy firm that we run together. And I also release new free trainings every week on the psychology of growing your influence, all of which you can learn more about at RoryVadenBlog.com. I'll see you next time.